Uh, please look to your left and right and take note of names that aren't here so I can prepare a sermon next week specifically pointed to them by name. That's the plan going forward. So, yeah, actuality, I'm not preaching next week, so Megan will, will call them out. I'm Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here for The Garden, and we're continuing our series on the life of David. And today, we're talking about family tradition. If I get stoned, I'm just carrying on an old family tradition. This is the first time in church history, at least Presbyterian church history, that Hank Williams Jr. has kicked off a sermon. (laughs) So you're here making history today. We're going to talk today about the role of Absalom in David's life. We're going to start this, and it's actually a couple of messages on Absalom. And this is a really tragic story because David, in reality, loses two kids at once. You guys remember the story last week about Amnon, David's oldest son and heir to the throne, who raped his own sister, and David was very angry but did nothing about it. And we talked about how God loves even crappy families, and it's a good thing because this family that David has is quite crappy. They have terrible traditions. And so the first thing I want to look at, I'm not going to read the passage because it's long and in sake of time today, but basically Absalom plots for two years. He's angry that, that his, his sister Tamar has been violated like this and he's frustrated that David doesn't do anything. So for two years he looks back and he waits for David to do something. David does nothing. So Absalom waits for two years and he invites the king and his sons to a feast. And David declines this this invitation, but allows his sons to go. So make sure you understand, sheep shearing is what Absalom says. Hey, listen, I've got some sheep shears, and I want everybody to come. Basically, sheep shearing would be like, hey, we're all going on a big fishing trip. All the guys, we're going to get together, we're all going hunting, whatever. It would be kind of, during those days, it was kind of like a festive occasion. And so basically, he's saying, look, King David, Dad, I want to have this big party. I just want... Every, I just want us to be a big family together. Very warm, very fuzzy, but it's so dysfunctional. It was supposed to be a festive time to get together, and it was natural that he would have a great feast during this sheep-shearing time. And he asked David, and David declines to go, but allows his sons to go. And I can't help but wonder if possibly part of Absalom's plan was not just to kill Amnon, but also to kill David. I don't know. It's possible. But see, this makes David partly responsible for this meeting. Just as Amnon got David to allow Tamar to visit, David now allows Absalom to be in a position to put his sons in jeopardy. And so basically what happens is, in verse 28 and 29, Absalom waits till Amnon is drunk during the festivities, during the party, Amnon is not, does not have his full faculties. 
And Absalom says, when he's drunk enough, I'll give you the word. And he says to his servants, go and kill him. Don't worry. I got your back. You're not going to get in trouble for this. Kill the king's oldest son. Kill the heir to the throne. Kill the prince. See, God promised David that because of his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, her husband, that the sword would never depart his family. And in judgment of David's sin, this is definitely part of that fulfillment of that promise. And here's what happens next. David learns of the murder of Amnon. And first the word comes to him and says, listen, that party that you didn't go to, you sent all your sons to, Amnon has slaughtered all your sons. He has slaughtered them all. But you guys remember, now, it's first of all, the scripture says when David hears this, he is just struck with grief. And I think part of it is probably because, I think he probably suspects that Absalom was probably capable of this. Because at first David said, no, nobody's going to go to this party. Okay, fine. The sons can go, I'm not going. You guys remember Jonadab? He was the one that manipulated Amnon into thinking he could have Tamar. Jonadab was the guy, the scripture said he was sly and he was a cousin. And, you know, his dad was one of David's brothers, Shimea. Jonadab knows that all the kids aren't dead. And so Jonadab is very slick. He's in good with Amnon, right? And he wants to get in with David now. So Jonadab makes sure, no, listen, David, surely it's not all your sons. It's just Amnon the rapist. See, Jonadab tries to gain favor with David. So you see there's this, this wicked, sinful dysfunction in this family, right? you got this, this nephew who sets up the thing with Tamar, takes advantage of Amnon's ridiculous, stupid, silly weaknesses. And he probably had a little bit of a role to play in this thing with Absalom. And he happens to know the real story. No, 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 David, not all your kids, just one. Just Amnon. And he knew it was coming. See, Jonadab is the one that set this whole dysfunction in motion. And he's the one that gets to deliver the quote-unquote favorable news to David. So somehow, the news isn't that bad. It's just one kid that got killed by his brother. Not all of them. Now David grieves about the learning of the death of his oldest son. But see, it's David's lack of correction against Amnon for raping his sister that actually contributed to this murder. And here's what's interesting. Here's some more dysfunction in this family. Absalom knows he's in trouble, so he flees to his granddad's house, who was king of Geshur. I mean, this makes sense. His mother's father was a king. And he says, granddad, I did something pretty bad. Can you put me up for a little while? And he's there for at least three years. And the scripture teaches us that after three years, and we would talk about this in the next part of the story, after three years, David longed to be reconciled to Absalom. Isn't this crazy? Without correcting him for his evil, he's a murderer. By the way, David's a murderer too. Don't forget that. David's tradition, David's family tradition of tolerating debauchery towards Amnon is repeated in his tolerance of murder by Absalom. 
And David continues this tradition of refusing to deal with ridiculous stuff publicly because he had no courage. Here's the man after God's own heart who was forgiven for murder and adultery has zero courage. I mean, come on, King David. Do you really think the people in your kingdom don't know about what happened with Tamar? You don't think Absalom has been blabbing it all over the place? Come on, David. Do you really think that nobody's going to know that Absalom's the one that killed Amnon? Really, David? But yet he pretends like it doesn't happen. In many ways, what we see is the sins of Absalom mirror the sins of David in many ways, right? I mean, David had both of these sins, the murder and the adultery, the sexual sin, all rolled up into one, including trying to get somebody drunk. Do you remember the story? He tried to get Uriah drunk. And so in reality, what we see is David does it in wall one fell swoop and his two sons take a few years, but they play out all the same exact sins, the tradition that David had laid out for them. This becomes the tradition because David, a man after God's own heart, a believer, just like us, had begun to live with a lack of courage to deal with these things. You know, if we continue with this story about David's throne, if I was going to do, you know, Life of David's Throne as a series, which I won't because that would take seven years, but a Life of David's Throne, we would see this crazy soap opera continue to play out of murder and incest and adultery and conniving and manipulation and stealing and all these things that go on for generations and how the kingdom gets separated and there's war between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and David's family tradition, his legacy, his heritage is not one, interestingly, of being a man after God's own heart. That happens later. Somehow we've gotten that as his tradition. But in reality, David's tradition was incredible dysfunction. Probably dysfunction to the level that some of us have never seen. Maybe some of us have seen some elements of David's dysfunction in his family. But I would imagine that probably none of us in here have all of it. See, we all have our own dysfunction we bring to the table. And to deny that you have this dysfunction is to perpetuate them. And you leave things in your family and in your life undealt with for years. And then you guys remember the book I shared with you last week about people of the lie. Maybe some of you picked it up and started reading it. We become people of the lie. Christians who look good on the outside, but underneath the skin of acceptance is this seething, bubbling debauchery and dysfunction. And bitterness and resentment that bubbles. And we lack courage to deal with it. And as we bring these types of dysfunction together to the table, let's look at some of them. Addiction is one of them. All different types of addiction. It's not just substance abuse. Addiction to pornography can bring dysfunction. Addiction to food can bring dysfunction. Alcohol, drugs. 
There's tons of ways that addiction brings dysfunction. There's manipulative control. Man, listen, that doesn't seem as bad as murder and rape, but it can be just as damaging. Because it can lead to some terrible, terrible pain. Unresolved conflict. Boy, our families, aren't we good at this one? I'm going to tell you, I have some in my own family. My immediate and, and, you know, a surrounding family. We have unresolved conflict. And it's tearing our family apart. I'm just being real with you. I and mean, you can pretend like you don't have it, but I know you do. Abuse. Not just physical, not just sexual, but there's verbal. There's this passive-aggressive thing that we become very good at as Christians. Matter of fact, I would say passive-aggressiveness is the favorite dysfunction of Christian families. It's our favorite because it can look so godly. But yet it's so destructive. And then there's cover-up. That's another dysfunction. And we're very good at that one. Fear of living in the light of who we are, who our family is. There's perfectionism or legalism. Where we project standards on our family members or our media family or even our church family that we know that we can't live up to, but we act like we do. And we talk about these standards... And if people really knew how bad we are at keeping them, it would be a laughing stock. And then there's poor communication. Oh, that doesn't seem like... No, listen. I believe that many times people make the decision to have poor communication. And it is a dysfunctional decision that causes pain and resentment and anguish that can echo for generations. Look, destructive patterns of behavior, when left undealt with, can leave you starved for healing and put others at risk. Look, the fact that our individual dysfunctional families come together as a church has to have a negative impact on us all, does it not? All of us, even you pretty ones. We create traditions here in the garden that make us a dysfunctional family. I've been here 18 months. Y'all are messed up. <laughs> you know, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth about this. Men with secret behaviors affecting every area of the church. It had gotten out of control. It was affecting their worship. It was affecting their teaching. It was affecting their outreach. It was affecting how they handled their money. There were sacred cows all over the place in the church at Corinth. It was dysfunctional families turning a church into an absolute dysfunctional mess. Let me ask you a question. What would our letter from Paul look like? Trust me. We are riddled with dysfunction. I mean, how can you not be with me as your pastor? I mean, for goodness sakes, I'm the poster child of it. Amen. <laughs> Who is that? Oh, my God. One of my small group people? I don't know. That's scary. They know a lot of it. Trust me. But see, 
when we think about our dysfunction, here's where the difference comes in. Are you, we, courageous enough to first admit we're part of the problem? It's so easy for us as Christians to say, man, look at these families. They're so dysfunctional. And forget that you are just as much dysfunctional. Yes, you are. I don't care how long you've known God. I don't care how many times in a week you read the Bible or pray. Trust me, you're dysfunctional and you bring negativity to the table. Are you courageous enough to admit you're part of the problem of our dysfunctional church? And are you courageous? Are we courageous enough to really explore the depths of our, your, my, we, our dysfunction? How afraid are some of you right now to think about just how dysfunctional you are? How dysfunctional we are? What your dysfunction brings to the table and causes here in the garden and at Church of the Palms in general? Are these thoughts of negative traditions overwhelming? Look, we can't avoid being dysfunctional. It's part of our natural tendency. It's this total depravity idea. We're dysfunctional. Deal with it. But if we don't deal with it, if we avoid dealing with it, it becomes selfish. Listen, if you... Do not deal with your dysfunction. You are being selfish with your redemption. You follow what I'm saying here? If you avoid dealing with your dysfunction, you become selfish with your redemption. Because even though you might secretly know about your dysfunction and also know that it's under the cross and under the blood of Christ, and so your dysfunction, although sinful, has been forgiven, but you don't deal with it in the correct way. Nobody knows, and they seem like they think maybe that you're okay. You're just as bad as they are. See, living in the light of our dysfunction in reality is part of this gift of faith that we can get from Heavenly Dad. This is why we teach the concept, at least I try to teach the concept, that Heavenly Dad always works in spite of us and never because of us. Because we are terribly dysfunctional. Like David's family, if we have families and a church afraid to live in the light of our dysfunction, then we promote dysfunction in those around us. And it becomes this vicious cycle. It doesn't mean you aren't God's family, because he does love crappy families, thank God. But there is a strange comfort in living in the acknowledgement that we are dysfunctional. Not so we can be comfortable with the dysfunction, but so that we are comforted by the brokenness that promotes the healing of our dysfunction. There's this relief when you find, you're right. I am dysfunctional. Now I can deal with it. And that drives us to dependence on Christ. See, the scripture says for a reason, 
The thing that God values more than anything else is a broken and a contrite heart. That's what he wants more. He doesn't care about how good of a Christian you are. He doesn't care about your religion, your church attendance, your offering. He says, you do not delight in burrow offering or else I give it. You do not delight in sacrifice or else I do it. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. That, oh God, you will never hate. You know who wrote that? The dysfunctional King David. So where are we as individuals, as families, as a church family? Are we fearful like David in dealing with the realities of our dysfunction? Here's from my journal. When I realize how inundated I am with dysfunctional behavior, both personally and in my family, and how I bring that into my church family, it destroys confidence in my personal or family godliness or my public institutional spirituality. I mean by that, how I act in front of you. I want to develop a new family tradition of living in the light and the brokenness that brings healing. That is the only hope of rescue others from the consequence of my dysfunctional family traditions in my family and in my church. Guys, our family tradition needs to be brokenness vulnerability, transparency, and openness about what our dysfunctions are so that they can be out in the open, living in the light of confession and mercy and grace. And guys, that is actually the beginning of a functional and effective family. A family that freely admits it's messed up. over a little bit of time, spend time with the students. I'm just going to...